On today's episode, I talked to artist and author Mira Levitale. I've long admired and followed Mira's work, and it was wonderful to sit down and talk to her about her own journey, the difficult decisions she's had to make, the, the trade-offs she's had to navigate, the realness of being an artist away from the glamorized version we might see on Instagram or in films, and the ways in which she's navigated all of this. Mira is full of nourishing and grounded wisdom, which makes everything that she's talking about, which can be so abstract and so difficult to really wrap your head around, feel really relatable and understandable, especially when it comes to figuring out your own path, carving out a path when one might not exist for someone like you or in the direction you want to go in and the ways in which patience and kindness have helped her along the way. Mira also talks about her own journey into motherhood and how it's helped her rethink her definition of feminism, which is honestly one of the most interesting conversations around feminism I've ever had, and I have a lot of these conversations in this job. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did and take away a little inspiration to to pave your own path and go the direction of your own dreams, even if it is difficult and even if it's a long journey as it is for so many of us. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. So to get us started, we don't like to define people. We let people define themselves, introduce themselves, how they want to be introduced. So um, I'm Mirali Patel. I am an artist, a writer, and a storyteller. It's a lovely definition. <laughs> how did you How did you end up being an artist, writer, and storyteller? Um, I've always been creative. It's always been encouraged in my family. My mom... Um, is a knitter. She sews. She made all my clothes growing up. We were always, you know, painting, drawing, writing. But I am also the child of immigrants, and we're a very pragmatic family. Um, financial independence and financial stability was really stressed in my house. So going to art school wasn't really an option. And I knew that from, you know, in early, in my early teens, I knew that it wasn't going to be an option both for my parents' approval, but also I dismissed it myself. So I went to school for journalism, um, still a liberal arts education, but I figured that I could follow my passion of writing in a way that maybe could also provide for myself. And so after graduating, I started working as an editor at a technical publishing company. So I edited papers written by electrical engineers my father is an electrical engineer, naturally, um, so he was really, really excited, and it was um, an organization that he had been a member of since he immigrated to the United States um, in the late 70s, so he was especially, I don't know, I guess just felt connected yeah. um, to my first job, Yeah. but I felt very disconnected, and it was not, not only was it not my dream, but I didn't find the work to be particularly meaningful. I was very detached from it. It was a lot of mathematics, um, a lot of, you know, relationships with semiconductors and magnetics. And I don't have a science brain. I don't have a math brain. Um, and I felt very much like a robot. The way I actually felt, which I think nobody ever wants to feel, is I felt absolutely replaceable. It did not matter who was doing this job. It just had to be done. So after about a year, I think I became really, really um, 
disenchanted with the idea of being an adult, um, which wasn't to say taking care of myself or being responsible or independent, all of those things I loved. And I was happy to kind of take control of my life. But I came, I became really disenchanted with our, at least the American view of society. And what do you mean by that? Kind of like what, what is our, like the American Western definition of what it means to be human is to be productive, to contribute to society, I think in a monetary measured way. Um, I think I measured my self-worth as a being in terms of um, contribution. How am I being valuable to not my community, but to society to keep the whole, the commercial success of the country running? And I became really depressed and I started writing and drawing just as a way to feel myself again, to feel connected to myself because I felt very detached and, you know, very drone-like and very much like I was functioning, but not um, really alive. So I started writing and drawing and I started um, my own Etsy shop as one does And I started doing the craft circuit and that was where I I was introduced to families um, with children who were making art for a living and supporting themselves and contributing to society and, you know, just being people, but they were being treated themselves and they were successful at it. If, you know, our definition of success can be less reliant on financial and more on meaning and being connected to oneself and to others. And so I decided that was my goal. And I spent eight more years working full-time at the publishing company while building my freelance career. So that was just like your way to pay the bills and you knew that? And It was my way to pay the bills, yes. But I think it was also very emotional as in it took me that long to feel confident in myself and to, to trust myself and to know that If something happened where I would falter when I didn't have the backing of my full-time job, I would be okay and I would figure it out. There was a lot of undoing of um, my upbringing and a lot of confronting a lot of the fears that had both been taught to me and that I had picked up on my own along the way. What kinds of fears were you having to sit with? I think that self-reliance is really important in immigrant households because when you leave your home and your families and your communities and you cross to the other side of the world and you know nobody, it becomes, I think, hard to build trust with new people and you become kind of insular in that you just rely on yourself and the people in your house. And so I had a fear of trust. I had a fear of believing other people when they said they would help me or support me. Um, I had a lot of fear of, um, I didn't have the self-esteem and the confidence. Like I had always been taught to play it safe, not to take chances, don't be risky. 
um, what makes you think that, you know, you can make it when, especially in arts, like it, it's nearly impossible to, you know, pay the bills and have a house and have a family on like an artist's wage. So it was, it was very much like, you know, don't, don't think that you're the exception, um, and that you will make it when so many don't. So it was, it was a lot of that. It was a lot of self-doubt. It was a lot of imposter syndrome. I'm self-taught. It's, you know, everything I've achieved has been through trial and error and from pure, I think, determination. A lot of those fears, yeah. It's also a thing of, it's not just, I imagine, at least for me, it's not just that it's how will you succeed when others have failed, but there isn't really like a model to follow, right? So yeah. how will you know what to do next? And yeah. how can you, like, you have to create the plan every step of the way. Yeah. And you have to keep like iterating and like making the plan adapt to the world around you into like yeah. your own failings and successes. Yeah. And there isn't really anyone else around you me at least, sure. who looked like me or like who had yeah. the same types of experience. And I was like, hey, yeah. I just have to like trust that yeah. I can learn from other people's experiences who maybe don't share my background. Yeah. Yeah. I, f I felt the same way. It was very easy. And I think I became a little bit cynical because I would look at all the artists that I admire that had made it. They don't look like me. They did not have my family background, my cultural background. You know, they weren't also, I will say they weren't interested in telling the stories that I wanted to tell, which also means that these successful artists and writers who have been accepted by the publishing industry, the publishing industry is not interested in the stories I want to tell. So it's like you said, if there's no blueprint for what you want to do and you're starting out, you know, in your own world, at least to be the only one doing it, it can also be a really uh, lonely endeavor. And then how do you even know that people will be interested in what you have to you say? Don't. <laughs> you don't. It's terrifying. It is terrifying. And I think the need to tell the story and do that work has to be so great as to not let those fears and the isolation and the discouragement keep you down for too long. Is that what has been like the driving force for you of just like, I need to tell these stories. I need this to be in the world. That is why I make. And it doesn't matter how much of my hours it takes or like what, what the structure of my life looks like to enable it? Um, for a long time, yes. And, you know, that was before I had a family and a partner and I could just work all the time, which is what I did. And, you know, I did put on the back burner a social life, relationships, like, you know, travel, a lot of other, like, people say, like, what are your hobbies? I'm like, I like to draw and paint. And they're like, that's what you do for work. And I'm like, yeah, but that's what I like to do. Um, so I will say like, maybe I haven't expanded like my personal horizons as much as I would want. And I hope to do one day that has been a sacrifice. Um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Okay. <laughs> I can ask another question that just came to mind as you were talking, um, <laughs> about it in some ways you've already started to answer it, but I think a lot about, and I think a lot of us who are creative people think a lot about, like, I want to be of use in the world as well. Oh, and yeah. when the world is on fire, which is all the time, yeah, it can be really hard to feel like there is purpose in making beautiful things or yeah. making things that tell stories or putting out into the world what you feel like needs to exist. And yeah. it's like, but, but am I being of use? Am I like doing yeah. the most? Am I doing anything? Like, is there something better for me to do? How do you sit with that? Oh, that's, you know, that's a very easy answer for me. Um, 
because I think in the darkest of times, the only things that have gotten me through are community, people, and art. It is the songs, the poems, the books that have gotten me through. I get like, (laughs) I get teary-eyed thinking about it. I mean, art is, it makes it possible. And I have found such comfort and such solace in so many stories that I have read through words or listened through music that I have not lived myself that maybe aren't even real, that are fictional. And I think that is also where I have found the greatest, um, the greatest depths of humanity is within art. And what do you mean by that? Sorry. I mean, there are so many examples and connections to the human spirit through pages and paintings and songs and poems. And there are constant reflections and reminders of all the good that humans can do and be for each other, as well as, you know, how horrible and terrible they can be for each other. But I think that it is a constant reminder of a, um, the balance that is in each of us, um, the good and the bad and how it's up to each of us to balance that and to know that whether we're having, um, a moment of weakness, it does not define us and whether we choose or not to act on that impulse is up to us. And it's also a reminder of all the good and how, precious life can be, how precious a relationship can be. And that is actually a blueprint. I think art can be a blueprint for how humans can behave in the real world. And so I, I am reminded of my work and very lucky to be reminded of the impact of my work every day. Um, I do get messages, emails, letters of people who use my books or have read them, Um, or who follow my work online and tell me about how it has impacted them. And so that is never, I don't, it never feels lost on me um, that what I'm doing is not of value or not of use. And I will say the times that I've become very disenchanted with my work or my career is when I start thinking about it in terms of commercial success, in terms of paychecks and sales and social media impact and things like that. But on a very human, um, connective level, when I think about, I often think about like what it, like when I'm dead, like what am I going to, what will I care about? And I will care about the community I have built and the impact I've had on the world. And I truly believe that if you can impact one person, then that's, as much as anyone can do in a lifetime. And so I do feel like I'm able to do that with my work. And my goal is to continue doing that. And earlier on, you talked about how the Western definition of like success and a human is very broken. Do you feel like this is the definition you've adapted for yourself of what it is to be successful, to be the kind of human you want to be in the world? Yeah, I do. And it is that is what I remind myself when I do get caught up, you know, when I am like lost in the, this is not doing well, or I'm not getting any, you know, nobody is reaching out to me for work or, 
you know, it doesn't look like I'm going to be able to bring in as much money next year. Like those are also realities, right? Like I have a family, I have people to take care of. So it's not something that I can just like wave away, but I am very comfortable with having to do other work to pay the bills, but the art I want to preserve. I never want to make something that isn't authentic to who I am. And I don't want to make work just for money. And it has taken me also a long time within my art career to make those decisions and to figure that out for myself, to know that that is not something that I am uh, willing to negotiate anymore. And on your journey, like thinking back to when you were working in electrical engineering, I'm going to say you worked in electrical engineering as opposed to being an editor (laughs) and where you are now, like thinking back to you, like five years ago, say where, or six years ago, whenever you were like starting to make that leap away from the, the full-time job that was soul destroying from the sounds of it, even if it was paying your bills and like making your dad proud and feel connected. What, what were the, like, how were you thinking through that? If someone is watching this and is at that point of like, (laughs) <laughs> I I want to do it, right? Like I yeah. want to eventually get to where Mira is at, but I don't know where to start. Yeah. Like talk us through kind of how you were thinking about it. I was thinking, I will say I was extremely unhappy. Like I, re- I really was. I was depressed in many ways. I It really, really disappointed me to think about spending, you know, our, our jobs 40 hours plus a week. It's the bulk of how we spend our lives. And it really disappointed me to think that quite possibly this would be my whole life would be spending time, not at this job. It's not about the job, but in spending my time, whatever time is allotted to me as a human on the planet in a way that was meaningless to me. It was really disappointing to me. And that was the most, I think, um, that was the depressing thought to me to think that my whole life would be for something that I didn't, um, that didn't connect with me. And so I will say the eight years that I spent working full time um, while doing freelance were very difficult. I will say mostly because they were lonely. I worked full time and then I came home and I worked on whatever I had to do um, for art and writing. I did so much unpaid work for so many years just to get my name out there, to build a portfolio, have any semblance of resume, There were a lot, I think even now, even somebody who has um, more of an established career, like it's very hard to not feel that any, every, each opportunity that comes along will be your big break. Like that's the one that's going to open the door and then you'll, it'll be okay. And the stress and the anxiety will go away. And what I've learned is that there is no one big break, but if you can be okay and accept a slow road, I have like very much accepted that I am on a slow road and it is steady and it is deliberate and progress is very, very incremental. If you can accept that and be okay with that and trust that everything you're doing right now, as meaningless as it may feel, or as much as it feels like you're pouring all of this heart and energy into something and it's not amounting into anything, know that you are slowly building a road. You're laying one brick at a time and it takes a long time to build a road that'll go anywhere, but you have to lay each brick and you have to make sure that each brick is on straight. 
and that you can walk on it and that it's not going to break apart. So you still, for each brick, you got to give it your all. Some of them are going to be crooked. Some of them are going to be broken. Some of them you're really going to forget about. Like, I don't even know when I put that one down, but slowly there will be a road and you will have been walking on it the whole time. And I will say the other thing that I've learned and that I really believe is that it's easy to have a dream and it is much harder to work towards it. And I don't think that the difference between anybody who succeeds at achieving their dream and those who don't, I don't think it has anything to do with talent or skill or any ability. I think it is, the marker is those that give up and those who don't. So if you're willing to keep going at it, however slow it is, however hopeless it seems, I think that you will get there one day. I really do. Have you ever given up along? I know for me, at least, I, I stop believing the road exists yeah. all the time. And I'm like, there's yeah. no road. Yeah. Who's talking about a road? Yeah. I'm just standing here yeah. in a field. Where is the road, right? And I give up all the time. But then I eventually am like, oh, wait, there is a road. Yeah. It's just a path. It's like. But that's not giving up, right? You have like momentary lapses. That's normal. That's natural. There's so many times where I said, I don't have to do this. I could have like a life. I could be, go I live in New York City. I could be going out. I could be meeting up with my friends. I could be having fun. I could be a 20 something year old who feels good. But instead it's me in my tiny apartment, not even hanging out with my roommates. I'm working nonstop. I'm saying no to everything just so I can do, try all of these different paths within the art world to see which one's going to work, work out for me. And when I look back on it, I'm like, yeah, I, I would do it again because I'm here now. Mm. And I know that it led somewhere. But when I was there and I wanted to give up, I gave myself permission to do so. I said, you can give up. You can stop. You can work your job. You're good at it. And then you can be a person. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's a good life. And I told myself that. And every time I said that and I said, okay, what do you want to do? Do you want to stop? Do you want to give up? It was always no. I won't, that's not what I really want. I, 10 years from now, will I be happy? No. When I'm, when I'm dead, will I be happy? No. Yeah. And so that led me back to him. That's how I knew it was for me. That was the road for me because I don't want to stop. So you're in your 20s and you're building your own road. Yeah. And it's what strikes me about how you describe it which I really appreciate is you're not romanticizing it where oftentimes people yeah. will look back and be like, oh, I was just so like invested in my art. You know, that yeah. was all I was doing and I didn't have time for anyone else. It's like, yeah. no, you were just really lonely, but like, for sure. And I appreciate that you say that. Yeah. Well, I think it's important because, you know, at that time also, I don't know if we're recording right now, are we? Okay. Yeah. Keep going. Yeah. <laughs> well, at the time, you know, I spent so much time listening to interviews, listening to podcasts, listening to people trying to, like I said, trying to find out what was that big break so I can chase that same big break and I can be where they are. And it was very discouraging to hear answers like, oh, well, I met this person at a party and they gave me a book deal. And then, you know, it's, that's, it took off from there or, my friend works in TV and, you know, yeah. it's, it was hard because that's not a path you can replicate. Like either you have those connections and you know people or you don't. Yeah. And I will say that led to a lot of my imposter syndrome because I felt if I had gone to art school, you know, that's where I felt, felt I think a lot of resentment. Hmm. Um, 
for my own decisions, but also, you know, not my parents' fault at all, but like if I had been born into like a white American family of means, like so many that I knew, I would have been encouraged to follow my heart, not to choose a practical route. And I would have had financial support if things didn't work out. And that is so many artists, so many artists, you know, they have even, you know, writers that I admire from like a hundred years ago, they had benefactors. They had people that said, we love your art. Here's the house, sit in it. You know, don't be bothered with making money or doing dishes or anything that one has to do to keep life living, like running. And you, you focus on your work. And I think that was extremely discouraging. And every time I hear from somebody a peer that's like, it's really hard. And I, I'm getting work now and people want to be where I am, but I still don't feel like I've made it. Like, is there, you know, now I no longer think there's a thing as making it. I think the fact that I earn a living and spend my time in a way that's important to me, that that's a, those are wins. Those are more than one could ever ask for. So that is success to me. Um, but I agree. Looking, especially an arts path, I think it always looks very rosy. People, especially I think, don't understand that a very small percentage of your time goes to making art and the rest is about really like being a business person. You have to run a business. You have to do bookkeeping and invoice and keep your books straight and a lot of pitching, you know, pitching for jobs, for commissions, all of it. Um, it's marketing, it's a business. So I think that is also, I would say like, you have to be willing to do that. Did you know that you were willing to do that when you started? Are you one of those people who I always find it interesting when people are like, oh, if I had known, yeah, I wouldn't have done it. But I was like too far gone down the path to like, yeah. to stop. Yeah. How do you feel about that? Because it feels like there's so much intentionality in every step you've taken. I like, I will say that I think that's the Gujarati in me where I like the business side. Not because I especially enjoy, you know, doing books and things like that, but I think you know, okay, this is this is going to be an honest but sticky answer. I think a good deal of my self-worth is still wrapped up in being able to make money through art. And that is something I grapple with a lot. And that is why sometimes the like the business side of, you know, the likes. Is anyone seeing this post? Is anyone buying this book? Oh my gosh, like, am I going to be able to get another contract if this doesn't do well? Those are the things that if I spend too much time in that space, it erodes at the part of me that is the artist and that can make, that is capable of making work that connects to other people. That's like, that's the, like the genuine, innocent, um, that's the core of the artist, right? Where for me, at least my art strives to connect with people, to make them feel less alone, to make them feel seen and for them to honestly, to give them a world to step into when the world they're living in does not feel capable of holding them. And if I spend too much time 
on the business side, the artist starts to, there's too much chipping away at that person, at that artist. And then I cannot make good work. And then because I am the artist, then I cannot feel good about myself and I cannot be there for myself or my family or my loved ones. So I will say another thing that I do think is very important for people to know. I said that I'm starting to draw a boundary between the work I want to make um, as an artist and what I'm willing to do for money, but that is a privilege. And it has taken me nearly a decade to be able to reach a place where I can say I am no longer doing anything for money. Up until I would say like a year or two ago, it was very hard for me to turn down work because I would say, well, this is going to pay, this is our groceries for the month and this is our mortgage for the month, whatever. And now I am able, I have made pragmatic decisions within the business with um, my second daughter, Frida. I said, with Nadia, I didn't, my firstborn. Love that your daughter's name is Frida. (laughs) With Nadia, I didn't stay home. I was so worried about losing my identity and losing my career. And so I worked through pregnancy. I worked through birth. I was working in the hospital. I worked after birth instead of resting, instead of any of that, sleep when the baby sleeps. That's not real, by the way. But I was working. Anytime the baby was asleep, I was working. And that was what mattered to me because I didn't want to, I didn't want the career that I had worked so hard to establish to disintegrate. And I also refused to let myself change. But I think when when you become a mother, like changing is not an option. It's going to happen either way. It's already done. Yeah. I was trying so hard not to, but I was changing. And then the turmoil came from me not being able to accept that I was different. And that I was just coming out of that, just starting to find myself again. Um, I went to, I don't think I've mentioned, but I went to grad school. I applied to grad school three months after Nadi was born. And we, I was accepted and we moved from our farm in Nashville to St. Louis. And I started school when Nadi was eight months old. And so we were still in COVID. <laughs> so you were working. I was working, going to school and had Nadi. Yeah, in a new city. Um, so like another experience in like total loneliness again, because now we left our community and we had nobody. Um, so we, I did that. And then my second year of grad school, I became pregnant with Frida. So then it was working, going to school, pregnant, naughty, <laughs> baby, in a new city, in yeah. a new city. And I decided, I said, I'm not doing this again because by then I knew I'm going to change again and this time I can't fight it I gotta let it go I gotta accept it I have to like whoever I become and work hard at changing the parts I don't like but you know fighting the change is not an option that's not how life works and so when Frida came I took a step back from work and I made that decision because it was really I think it's very 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 hard to be a working mother in America. And the reasons I was forcing myself to do it were not good enough. I was doing it because I didn't want to be forgotten. I didn't want to change who I was. I didn't want to be seen as just a mother. These were the things that 
frighten me. And those reasons were all in, rooted in some sort of insecurity. You know, it wasn't, I was worried my career, you know, would die. Like the, those are not good enough reasons. It sounds a lot like you were fighting the, like, you would you thought you would only get one di- one definition or one dimension of like yourself to exist, yeah. right? Yeah. You were trying to make space for all of it yeah. without really owning any of it. Yes. And I was in m- many ways trying to make myself small, yeah. right? To fit into that narrow definition of who I thought I was or should be. And with Rita, I said, you know, I'm going to allow myself time to change. I'm going to allow myself to say I don't have to do it all. I'm going to very much dismiss, I think it's a very American definition of feminism, which is feminism is being able to do it all. And I think that's the definition I grew up with. That's the definition I saw in my mother who immigrated, worked full-time throughout our entire childhood, adulthood, worked full-time, made a full Indian meal every night for our family, you know, cooked, cleaned, took me to gymnastics, everything, like did I don't know what she had for herself during a lot of those years. And I decided, okay, that definition of feminism that I've been sold is not feminism. That's a patriarchal definition that is meant to make me small and make me exhausted so that I can't fight a lot of the good fights that I need to fight. And so with Rita, I gave myself that time and I took a major step back. I still am going to be with her um, mostly until next September, but I'll start working a little bit in January. And what a joy it has been. You know, I still have those moments of, oh my gosh, I'm with a baby all day and I'm going crazy and I miss my work and I miss myself. And, you know, all of those things are true. But to not force myself to do it all for somebody else and to give myself time to heal and to be and to change, accept the changes, and also to know that life is not everything all at once. Sometimes it's a lot of this and a little bit of that and that'll change and I do trust that it'll all balance out. Um, I feel like I'm rambling a little bit, but the key here was that I'm giving myself time to be and to figure out who I am again and what I'm going to do next. And also, this is the tie back to the boundary between what I'm willing to do um, for money and what I'm going to do for myself, is these two years of, um, two, three years of having children and being forced to no longer have all the time in the world for myself and my work, it forced me to narrow my scope of interest. Um, And I am making a pivot in my career now to focus on children's literature. And so all of those fears that I had six years ago, you know, when starting to make the leap, they're all back because I'm doing something new. And what if I don't make it? What if people don't connect with the stories I want to tell? What if I don't find success? Like, who is it all for? And this time, like, I already know it's for me. And if I'm not making the work that's true to me, there's no way. If it's not honest, if it's not genuine, there's no way you could pick up a book and connect with it. And so if I want to be able to connect with you, with anybody, I have to be able to connect with myself through my work first. So I'm keeping that in mind. 
has it gotten easier to sit with the fear or to know what to do when the fear arrives at your doorstep? You know, to be honest, I will not say it's easier to sit with the fear. I think I still feel a lot of anxiety and a lot of self-doubt a lot of the time. But it becomes, I am able to identify the pattern and I know, um, not that I know how to make it disappear, but that I know it will disappear. And I, I guess I take that back. I do know how to make it disappear. Like any fear, any fear disappears the minute you stop thinking about it and start doing something about it. And so, you know, it's maybe it sounds cliche, but looking at it in the face, confronting it is the only way to kind of neutralize it. So I'm, I'm afraid of a lot of things, you know, with my work, with my life, gosh, with being a mother, so many things, but all of them, my only option is to move forward and to go for it anyway. And the thing I learned about fear is that it's when you fear is linked to failure and failing is not that bad. You know, like I can, I can try my hardest to make this children's lit career work and it won't work. And I'll say, I know I'll say, you know, 10, 20 years from now, am I happy? I tried. Yes. Do I feel like it was a waste of time? No. Have I had so many unexpected opportunities during those years that came from doing that work? And am I now on this like incredible new path that I didn't even have the strength to dream of? Yes. All of those are true. I already know that. It hasn't even happened yet. I haven't even failed. But if I do, I do know that some I'm going to end up somewhere awesome, somewhere beautiful because I'm trying. And so that makes it easier for me. It also sounds like you're not letting the failure define you, right? Which is when it really takes grip, at least for me, is if the fear of failure yeah. becomes like the definition of the experience, yeah. then it then all there is is a failure. But if it's just data and like a data point and a yeah. bigger thing, then yep. it's there's more dimensions to you, right? Like like yep. we were talking about earlier with being a mother, being yep. an artist, there's there are more dimensions than just the failure as well. Yeah. And if we're going back to the road analogy, it's like, it's not a straight road and the failure is just a curve or you went over a bridge or you went under an underpass. And that road is so much more interesting than a straight road. And again, when I'm dead, did I want the straight road or the interesting one? You know, did I want the easy breezy, you know, feel good life? Or did I want to say I was able to experience so much. I had really high highs, really low lows, so many times when I didn't think I was going to get through, but I got through. And how awesome was that? And I know that's the road I want. I'm going to go back to something else you said earlier where you shared the patriarchal definition of feminism. Oh, boy. (laughs) You're living your own definition, but if you had to define it for for your daughters when they're growing up and you want to explain what feminism is to them, how would you explain it to them? Oh, man, this is a great question. I do think the definition of feminism is... um, it's an evolution. It is constantly changing as we learn more about ourselves, the role of a caregiver, who is being cared for, um, and whose responsibility it is. But I would say right now, in the stage of life I'm in, and with the thought and exploration I've given this subject so far, I really believe that mothering is feminism. 
And I don't mean that in the traditional definition of mother. I don't mean that by like the person that gives birth and is therefore assigned the role of caregiving. I mean that as in feminism, I think if each of us, if every single individual on the planet sees it as their role to be a mother to somebody else outside of themselves, I think there would be a greater opportunity for equality and freedom and the sharing of resources for all people. And I, I really, I believe that. I think really, honestly, access to resources and freedom for all people. If everybody shared the work, because it is work, of caregiving and took it upon themselves to care for one other person, I think we could change a lot of things. And so I think the definition of mother needs to expand. Um, And it needs to, obviously, it needs to not be assigned to one gender, but more than that, also not the person giving birth. Um, And it needs to be seen as not a sole role. Like that person is a mother. She or he stays at home and takes care of the child. It needs to be a shared responsibility. You work and you also mother. It is part of it is part of human life. That is part of the life. It is part of the work. Um, so that is where that's where I'm at right now with the definition of feminism. That's not something we've ever heard before, so I love it. <laughs> what is the definition of mother that you feel like you grew up with? It doesn't have to be about your own mother, but like in the world around you. I mean, I think so much of it does have to do with my mother. A great a great mother and a person I'm very close to. But again, I'll, I'll go back to what I said, because I think that is the phrase that really stuck with me as a woman and throughout the first two years of becoming a mother. It's a person that does it all. That was what I, that's what I grew up seeing. My mom does it all. And then, you know, in my 20s, when I'm living on my own, I'm doing my own thing. I'm like, I can't believe mom did all that. How did she how did she go to work and have like a two hour commute and come home and pick me up and make dinner and take me to soccer and then read the bedtime stories and knit all my clothes. And, oh, she's still like, I'm, you know, 36. And if I have a hole in my jeans, like I pack them up when I go visit my mom, she sews them up for me. Like truly like a person, not a a woman who does it all. That was my definition. And it wasn't until I became a mother that I understood how much self-sacrifice is required in order to be a mother who can do it all and how self-negligent you have to be because there is only so much time and there is only so much energy and you are choosing to give it to everybody around you before you take even a little bit of it for yourself. And I don't know how you know, so many mothers in the world feel about that definition. I'm sure many will say, there's nothing I love more. This is what I choose. I would do it again. My problem with that is not with them and their choice, but the fact that at least in America, it's not a choice. Yeah, You have to do it all. If you want to continue your work, whether you love it or simply want to continue or need to continue, there's no support for you. There is no childcare. There is just, it is such an 
suppressive uh, system for mothers to live in in America. Having a child is extremely, extremely expensive and extremely, extremely difficult. And families are in our in the our modern time. You know, it's not my parents not only growing up in India and everybody together sharing responsibility, yeah. aunts taking care of nieces and nephews, cousins taking care of each other. Even when I was growing up, my paternal and maternal grandma lived with us hmm. until I was 16, 17. They took turns visiting all of their children and yeah. living. That is who we we didn't have babysitters, nannies. You know, my grandma was there. And I had such a close, intimate relationship with her because of it. Like, I make art about her. Yeah. And my aunt, when she was, when I was born, my aunt, who was married in her 20s, living in Georgia, left her husband for two years and was like, I'm going to go live with Bindu and take care of Mira. She came. Like, that. those were... It was no question. That is how those communities function. Yeah. But in America, it's not that way. It's unheard of. I tell people that was yeah. my life growing up, and they're stunned. Um, and me and my husband, we both work for ourselves, and we take care of both kids, and it is a lot all the time. There's no, there's nothing. And if we want to put, you know, Nadia's in school now, and it's the cost is astronomical. Yeah. You can't even, I don't know how anybody does it, to be honest. I don't. It also, like, it's striking to me. I mean, it's, you're not the only person who uses the phrase doing it all, right? It's a, it's how we talk about it. But just in you describing, even you describing your mom, who sounds very familiar to me, also immigrant family, it's, she didn't do it all, right? She did everything but take care of herself. Yeah. Or like have time for herself, have space for herself. And not in an indulgent way, not that there's anything wrong with indulgence, but also that there there wasn't any yeah anything. Yeah. yeah. And to assume that there will be no consequence of that is extremely false. There, there will be. Yeah. To have that much self-neglect, you know, for 20, 30, 40 years, like that has an effect on the body, on the mind, you know, on everything, on the spirit. And there's no, you can't take that back. And to ask, you know, to say, to ask of you know, traditionally women and mothers, that that is the sacrifice that they should make if they wish to have children. I can't think of like a more poisonous philosophy, Um, especially in the States, because we're so financially motivated. You know, it's a capitalist society. You run on humans. Like you need human beings to run this country. And the most important role of shaping children into being functional members of society who hopefully are healthy in their minds and bodies falls on the same person usually over and over again. And to ask that person to be so self-sacrificial in the name of society, it's extremely backwards and it's been going on for, you know, it's a tale as old as time. It's it's also interesting you describing the the village that raised you yeah. and thinking back to what you said earlier of the immigrant life is a very like self-sufficient one yeah. and just how like the contrast side by mm-hmm. side of you grew up with so many people around, but, or it sounds like at least yeah. the community was there and also the community wasn't there, right? It's, yeah. it's really interesting juxtaposition. It is that, you know, I don't think I quite put that together. Thank you for pointing it out. I do think, you know, you know, my parents, they're, they're 
siblings. They immigrated. They were there for each other. They tried to be that support and form that community that they had back home and tried to cobble it together here. But I think at the same time, you don't have that safety of your homeland and of your culture and of your people. And so fear, there's a lot of fear. And that fear, we were raised on that fear. That is ingrained. And I think that is where the self-sufficiency and don't rely on other people, you know, do not do not expect other people to take care of you. Do not ask, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to have debt. You know, you don't want to take out a loan. Like those are all different forms of help that you should not partake in. You need to take care of yourself. You need to be able to rely on yourself. And so there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of fear as, as much as they tried and did build an extremely beautiful you know, life in America in another place. I wonder if, and this is not something I thought we would get into at all, but if it's like partly their response also to the fact that like institutions aren't set up, like most countries have had some form of xenophobic laws at some point in recent past, if not current, present day. Um, And institutions aren't set up for immigrants, for people of color, for any marginalized group. So there's like a sense of, well, the system could turn on us even if it is serving us right so we have to support each other but then there aren't that many of us here so we like turn to the family we have who we know are like in it with us but there's only like 10 of us on an entire continent so like we really got to have each other's backs and like raise the next generation together and no one knows how we do it but we do it and it'll be mostly lonely but kind of together yeah I think there's all of that and I do think you know there's that big shock also of coming from a place where everyone looks like you and spoke like you and you know you were in it together to coming to a place where you're very much the outsider and everyone knows it and you feel it all the time you never feel quite at home even when you're in your house you know in your adopted country and I think that feeling of unbelonging um I'm certain my parents you know I've never really talked to them about it because that's another, yeah. I think, symptom of immigrant families where you're just like, I don't know most things about my parents. Like, they've had so many lives. And I do feel like I'm not privy to a lot of it because their focus and their lives were devoted to us, the children. Um, that feeling of unbelonging I brought up because I think as like a third culture kid, I feel it all the time. Yeah. And I didn't even do the big, huge, you know, monumental move to another place. But I'm like, well, I'm not quite, you know, I don't quite fit into this all white town. When I go to like an Indian gathering, I don't feel like I quite fit in there either. Where am I? Like, where do I belong? And so there is that, fam- I will say it's familiar. It's a very familiar feeling of unbelonging. It's, yeah, I, I feel that deeply. And I, I think it's also something of when you don't grow up around community that has a shared like set of experiences or vocabulary as you, the belonging I often find is with people who also have that feeling of unbelonging, yeah. which yeah. is really interesting, right? You build a community mm-hmm. out of feeling like you don't have one. Belong. Yeah. But it's that um, that empathy. That's genuine empathy, right? You understand that person knows. You don't have to explain it. 
And I think that builds a very deep connection. It also is a, just for me at least, it's a sign of like most most gaps can be bridged, right? Like yeah. we're all feeling some version of the same thing. Yeah. And if, if we just try to listen and be kinder. Yeah, I do think so. If we were open, I think. If we kept, I mean, I think that's the hardest work as you go through life and you have so many hardships and so many disappointments. I think doing the work of keeping your heart open um, is the hardest task, but honestly, the most, you know, important. I feel like I could keep talking to you forever. <laughs> Me too. going to wrap this up with our last question that we ask everyone, um, where this is called Little Revolutions with the idea being that change comes in big sweeps, but it mostly comes in the daily, right? And the, the laying the bricks of the road kind of thing of yeah. doing, doing small things to, yeah. to take on the big things that we're all dealing with and systemic problems that we're all dealing with. Um, yeah. So if you were talking to whoever's listening to this, watching this, yeah. a younger version of you or your daughters when they're like 20. Yeah. Um, and they were trying to find their place in a world where the definitions don't quite fit them, right? Yeah. They're trying to carve out space for themselves when they don't see the blueprint. What are some little revolutions for them? Like what are things that they could do, whether it's how they act, how they, how they live? Yeah. You know, I will say it's probably one thing that leads to many more actions and uh, connected philosophies. But I think that something that I didn't figure out until, I don't know, last year maybe, um, is that no sort of change internal or external is possible. Like you're not going to have very much impact on other people or the world if you haven't figured out how to love yourself. So if you haven't figured out how to look in the mirror and not cringe, like to even, dare I say, like what you see and to enjoy who you are and to trust that you are a good person who is doing their best, who is trying every day to do better, to be more open, to keep your heart open, to try to understand other people, um, to create positive change in whatever way you can. If you don't truly believe that, if you don't think you are worthy, that you don't deserve good things, um, if you think that your self-worth is measured by productivity, like, you know, all of those things, it really starts with women. I don't think that if you can love yourself, which I hope everybody eventually can, you can feel confident in yourself, which means that you will take risks and try to make change. And when you fail, it will be okay. It'll just be something that happened and you can try again. And so I will say that my biggest um, ambition is to truly love myself. And I'm raising two girls. So the work with having them understand that starts now. Yeah. They're three and seven months and we're starting now and to love themselves so that they have the ability to love other people and love the world. And if, if there's love in all of those things, then naturally they're going to want to take care of themselves first so then they can take care of other people and the earth. So that's, I think, the tiniest revolution. It's the biggest revolution. Yeah, yeah. With, yeah. yeah. That's wonderful. Is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't? No, I think this was a lovely conversation. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you so much, Mira, for this wonderful conversation. And thank you for listening. To learn more about Mira, where you can follow her, where you can buy her books, where you can buy her art, check out our show notes. Thank you.